What's up everyone? This is Dariusz Kalbarczyk, co-founder of NG Poland, JS Poland, Mastercourses.dev and WorkshopFest.dev. Welcome back to Ingula Master Podcast, where together with Manfred Steja, the leader of AngularArchitect.io, we discuss everything related to our favorite framework, present news, discuss tools and solutions that can't help you in your daily work. Today, our guest is Mira Manner, and we will talk about DDD. So let's start the show. Mira, can you introduce yourself to our audience? My name is Mira Manger. I'm 36 years old, a mother of two teenage children and a full-stack web developer. I've been working full-time for the Haufe Group in Germany, Freiburg, since the beginning of 2020. In my free time, I like to contribute to open source projects. Today, I would like to tell you a little bit about one of these projects. That's perfect. So... uh... Yeah, let's uh, let's start the show. And uh, can you tell us a little about the project where you introduced DDD? Rano is an application that was born during the Via versus Virus hackathon in March 2020. The aim of the hackathon, which was sponsored by the German federal government, was to find solutions to the challenges of the corona pandemic. Carano's specific aim is to relieve the health authorities, which play an important role in the fight against possible low incidences. By digitizing self-reports of confirmed COVID-19 cases, data which is currently manually collected can be made available to the health department automatically and in real time. This leaves more um, time, even with an increasing number of cases, for dealing with the critical and care-relevant cases. The infected person enters their close contacts into the application and these people can then be automatically informed and tested or quarantined by the health department. Daily self-recording and documentation of the quarantine or isolation period gives both the health department and the patient or suspected case a reliable overview of the entire period. Yeah, well said. So uh, what is the tech stack used in this project? We use a cockroach database with a Java Spring Boot REST API and an Angular front-end. The application can be hosted on-prem on an internal server or in the cloud, depending on the wishes of the respective health department. So, uh, who are the people behind Corana? First of all, we are simply a group of people who more or less randomly got together from the crowd of over 28,000 participants during the hackathon to work on this topic. We didn't know each other before and come from all corners of Germany. In addition to developers and DevOps specialists, we also have domain experts in the team, as well as security, data protection, requirements engineering and sales experts. We all volunteer for Corano in our free time. Over time, some people have left and others have joined us. That has always depended a little on what knowledge was needed in the respective phase of the project. In order to be able to act as a legal entity, we have founded an association, the Carano EV, through which, for example, the contracts 
with the health authorities are processed. Uh, we develop open source with the greatest possible transparency and the full code can be found on GitHub. Okay, that's perfect. So uh, why did you choose to use NX and DDD? There are several reasons for this. On the one hand, due to the high turnover of team members, as I already mentioned, it is important that new developers can quickly find their way around the code. The code should therefore reflect the real domain as closely as possible and be divided into meaningful modules. In addition, with so many changing contributors we, who also have different levels of knowledge, it is also important to incorporate some security features that, for example, prevent circular dependencies and enforce a certain architecture and development procedure. The goal of all of this is to ensure the application remains expandable and maintainable over a longer period of time. And last but not least, NX also offers some helpful features beyond DDD. For example, individual libraries can be tested separately and the NX CLI improves the native Angular CLI in some places, which, for example, makes version updates a lot more convenient. How did you go about introducing NX and DDD? The initial code was created as part of the hackathon and then developed further in record time so that it could be used by the first health department just a few weeks later. Eventually, of course, there comes a point when, when you decide to put the code on a more solid foundation. One of our developers had already gained initial experience with NX in advance and suggested using it. We then went looking for a comparably complex open source project that uses NX and DDD to get an idea of what the project might look like after the changeover. But unfortunately, we couldn't find one which met our requirements. <clears throat> so we read through the documentation, watched some videos on the topic, mainly from Manfred, and then just started. Unfortunately, we quickly reached the limits of the documentation. That's why I cheekily wrote to Manfred and asked whether he would like to support us as a DDD coach, and he immediately agreed. With his help, we were able to quickly clarify the open questions and complete the changeover in a few weeks. So thanks to Manfred. Okay. Yeah, very welcome. It was a pleasure for me. And as you say, uh, as NX is heavily used in the enterprise, you don't find a lot of free full stack examples out there. I know so many cool examples and products, but I cannot show them because they belong to this or that company. And so I'm really happy that we have now your product as an open source project showing how to use an axe and the idea of DDD in large scale. By the way, Mira, uh, did you remember when you first time met Manfred? Um, I haven't met him until now. I only watched his videos and then okay. I wrote an email to him when we were in trouble with NX. <laughs> <laughs> what were the challenges you faced? First of all, we had to clarify which modules we wanted to separate the application into. It made sense to distinguish between the part for the health department and the part for the citizen. The next step was to identify features. 
And that was more difficult because it is sometimes not entirely clear where the feature begins and where it ends. And everything that is used by different features goes into the shared folder. But even there, we discussed for a long time how we should split the libs for the shared folder. And um, after we had structured the code in this way, we were, of course, a lot, there were, of course, a lot of warnings about cyclical references and invalid references with regards uh, to the constraints defined in the TSLint file. And we then had to resolve these bit by bit, which was quite tedious and uh, repeatedly raised new questions. For example, what do we do with a lib that is not a feature of its own, but also not a dump UI component? Or where do general components such as interceptors, guards, or resolvers go? Where do the root configurations belong? And we also had to move the layered components for header and footer around a few times until we found a suitable place for them. So how, how do you solve those issues? We worked closely with Manfred during this phase and examined the individual cases in detail. Header and footer ended up at the app level because they affect the shell and they have dependencies down the stack. We packed interceptors where they fit best thematically. For example, the auth interceptor, which adds the JWT token to every request, went to the auth domain library. And everything that has to do with error handling has its own lib in the shared folder and the global error interceptor was, was then also packed in there and so on. We solved the routing in such a way that we left a basic routing in the app and then defined the child routes for each feature directly in the respective feature library. This has the nice side effect that overall there are fewer dependencies between the libs because, for example, the root configuration for the change password feature only has dependencies within the feature, namely the change password component. We located guards and resolvers in the domain libs knowing full well that, strictly speaking, they do not contain any domain logic. Still, that was where they made the most sense to us. Okay, so are there any things that you think could be improved? By splitting the projects into many small units and libs, you can quickly get lost in a folder jungle. It also means that you lose a bit of the big picture of the application. What bothers me a bit is the fact that features that are actually hierarchically based on one another are lined up next to one another on one level in NX. This makes it more difficult for an outsider to recognize the connections between, between the features. Okay, so what advice would you give to other developers who want to introduce DDD into their Angular projects. NX in combination with DDD already provides a very good structure for the front-end architecture. However, you have to realize that none of these are dogmas. When in doubt, you should also use common sense. And from my point of view, it is advisable not to split up the features too granularly. Otherwise, the application will quickly become too confusing and the dependencies will be difficult to handle. It's better to start out roughly and refine it further if necessary. So uh, what happened to Corona after the next introductions? Compared to other German public administration projects, 
Kairano went into production in record-breaking time in its first health department in Mannheim. Other health authorities also expressed interest, which then flattened over the summer of 2020 together with the declining incidences. In the autumn, they come back to the table. And um, unfortunately, in the meantime, a law has been passed that all health authorities must use SORMAS, which is being developed by the Helmholtz Institute in Germany. And SORMAS has recently closed its interface so that the health departments can no longer use Carano in parallel with uh, SORMAS, what, which they did before. Therefore, the project has unfortunately been on hold for several weeks now. But we haven't completely given up on it yet. Let's see what the coming autumn brings. <laughs> okay. So can uh, interested listeners see the code anywhere? Yeah, sure. The code is hosted open source on GitHub and can be found under the keyword Kerano-application. Super. Um, what are the most important two things you would like our listeners to remember from our interviews? The most important point I would like our listeners to remember is that an X and DDD can help you build modular and maintainable Angular applications. And for everyone who wants to start with NX, I think it's better to start out roughly and refine it further if necessary. That's perfect. Well said. So let's uh, start with Manfred now. Manfred, how tactical design DDD help to organize our source code as a smaller uh, manageable parts? Mm. Yeah, so... It's somehow interesting that I'm not speaking that much about tactical design. You know, if you look into domain-driven design, you have tactical design and strategic design. And as an architect, I'm talking more about strategic design because it's about decomposing a big system into tiny parts and thinking about how they interact or not interact with each other. So this is what software architecture is about, if you ask me. On the other side, tactical design is what happens within those business domains. And uh, it defines several patterns. And I think one reason I'm not talking that much about is that most of those patterns are meanwhile common knowledge. They define patterns like entities or factories or repositories and so on and so forth. And I think meanwhile, developers know about those patterns. However, and uh, this is where I come back to your question, uh, there are indeed some interesting ideas tactical design brings that are not real common knowledge. Ideas like the idea of an aggregate. An aggregate is a group of entities It could also be just one entity. But if you uh, describe it like in the book, it is first and foremost a group of entities. And uh, this group of entities belongs together quite strongly. A very nice example is an invoice. An invoice and an invoice line, they belong together quite strongly. And so they could form an aggregate. And there is one rule that is quite smart, if you ask me, namely one aggregate is not allowed to directly reference other aggregates. 
That means your invoice is not allowed to directly reference a product. However, the invoice, especially the invoice line, is about a product because I want to charge you this or that product. And so we need some way to reference it even though. And with aggregates or between aggregates, this is done using IDs, just simple, plain old IDs like we use them in relational databases. And as it turns out, an ID is a very unobtrusive way to reference another object because it's just an ID. It's just a value. It is just an integer or something like this. It's far more unobtrusive than going with object references. Because if I'm using an object reference, the left code side needs to know the right code side, and this calls for a coupling. But with just using an ID, an integer along something like this, you don't have any coupling. It's just a value. And I think it's really smart because this is one way to decouple your big objects graphs into tiny pieces that don't need to know each other. And this is one of the goals of sustainable software. Make sure that your parts, your libraries, your folders, as you want to call them, are not intermingled that much. Yeah, This is one, one idea I really like. It also allows you to split your domain model into several libraries that don't know each other. Another um, aspect of technical design I like is the idea of a domain event. This is also about loosely coupling things together. If something interesting happens in your domain, you just emit a domain event. Something like, hey, this user purchased my book. Or even worse, the uh, user purchased the book of my competitor. And then other business domains can act upon this or they can just ignore it. It's unobtrusive because I don't assume that something happens. But if other domains are interested, they can act upon it if they really want. And so here we see two patterns, namely... Uh, the messages, the domain messages or domain events and aggregates that really helps you to decouple your stuff. Okay, uh, so how monorepos help implementing this? Mm -hmm. So a monorepo is nothing else at the end of the day than a big folder with a lot of source code. And by design, you put everything into this folder structure. Of course, you can have subfolders. But by design, you put everything in there that belongs to your very software system. Different libraries, different applications, everything is put there. And of course, you need to organize this source code a bit. Because if you have a lot of source code files different libraries, different applications, you need to organize it. And so it's a smart idea to organize them according to ideas of strategic design. Strategic design tells you about different business domains. So you could create one folder per business domain. And within those folders, you could further structure according to common ideas of tactical design like the idea of isolating domain logic, 
that means for your domain logic, you could have one folder with one library, and perhaps there is another folder with business uh, components, components implementing use cases. Perhaps there is another folder with utility stuff for reusable presentational components. So by aligning with those ideas, uh, you can make your folder structures, your subfolders and sub-subfolders a bit more meaningful. Mira already mentioned before, one of the challenges here is the folder jungle of this monorepo. But by giving all the folders a meaning and by making those folders respect or represent a structure you have in your head, a logical structure, you make this a bit easier. How facades help with isolating your domain logic? Yeah, so facades are also a nice idea that indirectly comes with domain-driven design. In domain-driven design, they call them application services. But it's nothing else than a facade that is orchestrating different things of your domain. Uh, for instance, to just give an example, yesterday I bought some ice cream. And so I went to this, uh, to this uh, vendor that is selling ice cream And they have a facade, and in this facade there is a window. They open this window, and I told them, oh, give me this and that taste. And so I got this and that taste, and uh, I paid it, and that was it. But I did not have to take care about how they produce their ice cream. If they use milk or soy milk, if they use real strawberries or just something that looks and tastes a bit like strawberries. I'm also not interested into their process. I just told them, give me this or that taste, and I got it. And the same is what a facade in software development is doing. As the consumer, I'm not interested into what happens behind the facade. I'm just telling the facade, do this or that. And then the facade is doing the rest. It is orchestrating all the tiny and bigger classes and functions of this very business domain. And this, of course, reduces complexity. I don't need to know all the details. And on the other side, it makes details exchangeable. Because as long as the facade stays the same, they can exchange detail behind the facade. If they decide to switch their milk vendor or their vendor for strawberries, coming back to the example of ice creams, I will not recognize it as the customer because it happens behind the facade. I can still order uh, my, my balls with, with uh, strawberry or chocolate and I will get it. Okay, well said. I like ice creams also. So. Yeah, ice cream. Especially in Graz. And uh, I don't remember the place where we was last time. It, uh, was, it was Temmer. It is Temmer. Uh, very famous in Graz. I think also in other parts of Austria. But especially in Graz, uh, they are claimed to have the best ice cream there. Yeah, the, it was really, really good. They, they, they really did the job great. So, yeah. um, back to the topic. 
uh, how client side did he uh, pave the way to micro front ends? Mm-hmm. Well, I always like to talk about DDD before I talk about micro frontends because one reason is micro frontends are not the solution for everything. A second reason is DDD almost all the times makes sense and DDD can lead to micro frontend. I mean, if you figure that micro frontends are a good fit for your current needs, then you can just take all the business domains and create a separate application for them. One application for this business domain, another application for that business domain. And this is what micro frontends are about, having several tiny applications that can be implemented in an archaic way by uh, different teams. Saying this, Micro frontends make a lot of sense if you need to coordinate different teams. If you just have one team, then most of the times going with a traditional monolith is good enough. But if you need to split it, if you need to have archaic teams, then uh, this is the way to go. And for this, so that you can split, first of all, you need a cut into business. Well said. Manfred. Let's talk about our uh, AngularMaster.dev course. Are you planning any changes or upgrade uh, to mm. the AngularMaster.dev video course? If so, when we can expect those things? Yeah. So the thing is, I'm doing this course since, I think, 2016. I even did it before Angular was final because I was an early adopter for Angular and I helped a lot of companies moving to Angular. I mean, it, it was somehow a difficult time back then because AngularJS was official already away. I mean, officially it was just a thing, but we all knew that there is a new thing coming, namely Angular. And so a lot of companies have not been sure if it is clever to still invest into Angular Chess or to invest into Angular, which was in alpha and then in beta. And so a lot of my customers decided to invest into Angular, even though it was in beta, uh, because it was the new thing and they did not want to write code that is legacy code, that is considered legacy code uh, one year after. So they decided for Angular, and that's why I've created Angular workshops. One was a essential workshop, and the other workshop we are talking here about was my advanced workshop, which evolved into this enterprise workshop. And since then, obviously, I improved this workshop a lot. I added new topics, I skipped other topics, When I felt, well, this topic is meanwhile well-known, everyone knows it, I don't need to talk about it anymore, then I just skipped it. One example for this is routing guards or interceptors, HTTP interceptors. You find them in each and every project. Uh, a lot of people know about them. A lot of people have used them, so I skipped them in favor of new topics that arrive. New topics like... Uh, NX, which was quite new back then. Uh, new topics like 
incremental compilation with an axe, but also new topics like micro frontends with module federation. When uh, module federation arrived, I immediately put it in the discourse. And so it is somehow something that evolves quite naturally. Every time there is a new trend or something that really makes sense for my story, it needs to make sense for my story, for the Angular architecture, I put it in there. And as mentioned, the last big thing I've introduced there was uh, micro frontends with module federation and also the combination between module federation and um, and and uh, web components, which gives you a lot of new possibilities like mixing React with Angular. If you really need it, of course, it is a bit more complex, but if you need it, you can do this. And this is all in there. Uh, and so currently... In my opinion, it's up to date and it has all those tricks. So in the short term, I don't plan to change it a lot. But obviously, in the midterm or in the long term, new topics will appear once again. And this is when I will uh, put them into our course. Super. Tell us about your Zoom meetings with the course participants. Has anything surprised you? Yeah, so for this, I need to say that our course is a mixture of a video course and of an interactive remote course. Uh, we are handing out material in the form of recordings, in the form of examples, in the form of lab descriptions, and people can work on them in their own base. They can say, well, I'm skipping this, but I need to... Uh, put a lot of focus there because this is a new topic for me and an area of interest for me. So they can work on their own base and do their own priorities. And then once a week, we are meeting in, we call it an office hour setup. We are meeting there and this is where I'm answering questions. And the interesting thing there is, as people dealt with the topic for a week until then, they really come up with very sound and clever questions. And yeah, this makes sense because in a traditional workshop setting, when I learn it now, I need to digest everything before I can ask good questions. And so perhaps the good questions only come in mind after the workshop. But here, as we have the separation between working on material and asking questions on Friday, uh, people can digest everything, they can think it through, and so they really come up with clever questions, and um, I tell you, this makes a lot of fun, because in this case, we don't talk about theoretical things, we talk about practical things, because in the meantime, people try to think it through and thought about how to integrate those ideas into their very project. So it's very valuable, if you ask me, and uh, it makes a lot of... Okay, that's amazing. So, guys, thank you uh, for today's podcast. It was an honor to meet you. Thank you so much, and see you next time. <laughs>